0: All right, I'm going to be continuing to preach from the book of Haggai. And uh, next, it's actually the second to the shortest book in the Old Testament. I I didn't know that, but it just happened to turn out that way. But uh, I'm continuing to preach through it. Um, I just wanted to make an announcement. If you are a Korean native and uh, English is not your first language, I want to encourage you. to read the niv in your devotional times um because um but when we study the bible here together uh, we're going to refer to the esv because it's just more dynamic uh for getting into the literal translations are a little bit better for bible study but if it's uh i know it is a little difficult to read in your devotional times so uh, i just want to encourage whether you're korean native or not if uh esv is a little bit more difficult for you to get through uh you don't feel guilty with reading the niv all right (laughs) Uh, praise the Lord. <laughs> All right. right, going to have to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 with me. I'm going to move quickly through this. So uh, you're going to have to stay with me. Stay alert. And uh, I'll lay down the framework from which I will be preaching today's message. 2 Chronicles chapter 36 verses 15 to 20. Now, uh, as a quick review, uh, let me briefly set the context of Haggai once again. So, when you look at Second Chronicles chapter 36, I'm, I'm trying to help you set, uh, get the context in your mind. Look at verses 15 to 20 with me. In the ESV, it says, "The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent, meaning sent His word, persistently to." Uh, The Jews there by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He, the Lord, gave them all into the uh, into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes. All these he brought to Babylon, and they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire. And destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons. Until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Amen. In 586 BC, after the Lord has spent decades sending his word through his prophets to the Jews. The city of Jerusalem was finally destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And all who survived this destruction, they were exiled and they were scattered all over the Babylonian Empire. Now, don't throw that up yet. No, just wait for my prompting. Hallelujah. Uh, now, uh, this is what we just read. It's like a, just an account of the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, if you want to kind of get an idea of what it was like during that time of exile, just read the book of Dan- Daniel. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> the book of Daniel would go right there around this time period. Now, 46 years later, in 539 BC, the Persians came and they conquered the Babylonians. And it is at this time that we continue reading from verse 22. So look with me, 2 Chronicles 36:22. Let's keep reading. Now it's 46 years later. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in it in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms, kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. All right. Now, Cyrus in three five 539 BC, he makes this decree. And he tells all the exiles, you may return to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple. And he actually funds this from his royal treasury. So he gives all this like money and gold and, and articles, and even some of the articles that Babylonians had plundered, he began to return to Jerusalem. So under the favor of God, uh, the exiles, they began to return and rebuild the temple. Now, who was the leader of this group of exiles? <laughs> you guys remember my sermon from two weeks ago. What's his name? Zerubbabel. Everybody say, Zerubbabel. So about 50,000 Jews led by Zerubbabel they return home and they begin work on the temple. It's now during this time that God not only restored the temple but he began to restore the social, the cultural, the spiritual identity of the Jewish people. And in about 2 years the foundation of the temple was finally done. It was laid. Just the foundation and when the, what happened was the neighbors of that area, you know, because everybody was exiled. There's all kinds of people living there. Samaritans and other neighbors saw this. They felt threatened. And so they opposed the Jews in the rebuilding project. And they were actually able to halt the work for over 18 years. They were able to put a stop to this. And it is in the year 520 B.C. where the book of Haggai picks up. All right. So everyone, everyone with me? All right, we all on there? Now, as I preached two weeks ago, <clears throat> despite the fierce opposition, from God's perspective, the Jews were more to blame for their inactivity than their enemies. Now, let me say it again: the Jews were more to blame for their inactivity than their enemies. You see, in Haggai chapter two, God indicts. Uh, I mean, in chapter 1, God indicts the people by asking, how can you live in panel houses while my house lays in ruins? Right? And he indicts the people for their inactivity. And God explains that a curse is upon the people and the land. Right? They, have, they, they experience small harvest, a lack of satisfaction. Uh, uh, they lose their earnings. There's a drought on the land. There's mildew, all kinds of you know. Things that were evidence of a curse upon the people in their land for their inactivity and their neglect of God's will. And very similarly, I believe that God <coughs> is indicting much of the church today for our inactivity. And God understands that it's difficult when we face opposition, but he always calls us to push forward despite the opposition. He reminds us of his promises That are greater than any opposition that we may ever face in doing the will of God. And if you use that opposition as an excuse for you to no longer do the will of God, God will hold you responsible, not your enemies. And that's what we look at here in Haggai chapter 1. You see, brothers and sisters, when God is with us, Psalm 512 says that God's favor surrounds us like a shield. Amen? Amen? See, when God's favor is on you like this, it opens up doors that no one can shut. Amen? Amen. Now, by the end of chapter 1, the remnant, they, they restart the building project. They get convicted by the words of Haggai the prophet, and they begin to restart the project. It's about 18 years since, they, since it ended. Uh, but it's not smooth sailing. Once again, they face opposition. But this time... From a local governor named. Tetanai. So if you want to read a full account of this. You got to read Ezra chapter 6 and 7. This guy named Tetanai. Uh, he tries to stop the rebuilding of the temple. By sending a letter to the. Current Persian king at that time. His name was Darius. And he tries to get an official order from him. To stop. To halt the work. Of the rebuilding of the temple. Now. A search is made into the archives. And Darius finds the decree that Cyrus made about 20 years before. And to the surprise of Tetanai, Darius authorizes the Jews to continue. Behold, God sets before you doors that no one can shut. Amen? Amen? You see, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all people and over all rulers. Over every king, even pagan kings, God is sovereign. And the Lord controls history. And he he orchestrates events, hallelujah, according to his purposes, on behalf of his people and for his glory. You know, our God is an on-time God, amen? Amen. You know, he's never late. There's never been anything that has escaped his eye. He's... Not like a man that he would forget something. When he calls us to follow him, when he calls us to get involved with his work, oftentimes it's because he's already lined up situations, people, favor, so that you can be successful at it. See, the opposition is not a sign that God doesn't want you to finish it. The opposition is simply something for you to get through so that you will have a stronger resolve, a stronger sense of call. To finish the work of God. Hallelujah. In fact, not only does Darius authorize the Jews to continue. He orders Tetanai to pay for all the expenses of the projects. Hallelujah. So this guy sends his letter to Darius hoping to get an order to stop the building. He gets a letter back not only authorizing them to continue. But he gets an order from Darius. You pay for the project. In fact, you pay for all the animal sacrifices that need to be made at the temple. And Tentenai, you know, he knows that he has to oblige. Because Darius said, anyone who opposes this will be put in, impaled onto a pole and something, like, some crazy stuff like that. And there is, so Darius was like, make sure you do it. All right. Tentenai, he obliges. But it says, so what looked like opposition and difficulty for the Jews was really a hidden blessing. Amen. You see, that's, that's like that in our own lives. When God calls you to do something and you face opposition, we get all discouraged and down. But if you would just look past it and get through it, what you would really find is every, behind every opposition there's a hidden blessing. Because the Bible says in Romans 8.28 that our God works all things for the good of his people. For the good of those who are called according to his purpose. If you have been called according to God's purpose, everything that you face, God will turn it around and bless you. He'll make it good onto you. But most people, they, they, they miss out on that because they give up before. We are more than conquerors, amen? You see, not only can God give us, uh, grant us victory over our enemies, but God can actually cause your enemies to be favorably disposed towards you. Amen? That's what the Israelites experienced as they left Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians. They came out. They went in as slaves. I mean, they they were leaving as slaves, but they... Yeah, they were slaves in Egypt, but they left millionaires because they plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians actually just were like, hey, take this gold ring. Hey, take, 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 take all these things with you while you're at it. Because God made them favorably disposed toward him. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror. See, more than a conqueror isn't... <laughs> conqueror is someone who overcomes. More than a conqueror is when God actually takes your enemies and makes them bless you. That's why God says, bless and do not curse. Love your enemies. Because there's a hidden blessing if you will follow this command. Hallelujah. Psalm 84, 11 says, the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. <clears throat> now, in fact, going back to our original passage, turn to Haggai chapter 2. In Haggai 2, verse 8, God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Hallelujah. You know, all the finances that our church has today really belongs to God. Amen? And not only that, but the money that businessmen, politicians, kings, and even drug dealers possess. All that wealth belongs to God as well. Do you know that? God doesn't look at the wealth of a drug dealer and say, hey, man, that's, that's his. No, God says, that's mine. What he doesn't know is he's doing me a favor. He's building up that wealth. Hallelujah. And one day his life will be taken for him or, you know, he'll, he'll experience bankruptcy. He's going to lose all that wealth and I'm going to store it up for my righteous, for my righteous people. He's going to release it to his people. Hallelujah. And this may be a new teaching for some of you. I'm going to just teach on it real quick. You see, um, Jerubbabel and the remnant, they experienced this. Uh, you see, if we will be committed to the work of God, even in the face of opposition, God will release the silver and the gold on our behalf. <clears throat> now, the Bible promises in Isaiah 61 you will feed on the wealth of nations. Hallelujah. Point, point to your neighbor, tell them that. You will feed on the wealth of nations. You ever look at the wealth of nations? Man, a person can be the ruler of the poorest country in the world, but you go find out where he lives. He's just living in wealth. Man, there's a lot of money, you know. There's a lot of wealth in the nations. And God is saying, you will feed on that wealth. And this is, a, this is a teaching, especially true of the end times. You see, and this wealth of nations is not given to you for you to get a Mercedes in a mansion. Amen? (laughs) It's for you to build a house of God. For you to plant churches. For you to open up orphanages. For you to advance the kingdom of God. Wealth of nations is being released to his people. And I believe New Philadelphia will be entering a time where God will entrust millions, even hundreds of millions, to be used for his kingdom purposes. And I believe before this money is released to us, we will face great opposition. The bigger the funds, the greater the opposition, the greater the challenges that we will need to walk through. See, our mother church, here Songdo, they've handled large funds. Campus Crusade, which I'm on staff with, they deal with these large funds all the time. If you look around, there's so many Christian organizations, ministries that are already handling funds into the millions and hundreds of millions. For us, we we have such a small mentality. But when it comes down to it, to really do kingdom work, you need money. And you see, the people of this church, hallelujah, as we continue to mature and position ourselves for this level of kingdom work, we're going to experience and see it. <clears throat> you know, I want to declare right now, the people of this church, you're going to own, you're going to own church buildings. Not just church buildings, you're going to own high-rise buildings. Well, who, do you think, who do you think owns all the high, different owners that own all the high-rise buildings you see in the city of Seoul? You, you're sitting there like, I will never be able to see something like that. And God is saying, it's for you next five, ten years. Some of you, you're going to open up schools. Man, there's all these men, all these like, God bless them. You know, all these people in Korea that are opening up all these schools. But man, a lot of them schools, man, they just, they're not doing things right. But you know what? God's going to use some of you to open up schools. They're going to really glorify his name. You're going to open up orphanages. You're going to minister to nations. You're going to plant churches. And the good news is the funding for all these projects, they will initially come out of your pockets, but it will be completed through the wealth of the nations. Because you know what? You can only really complete it through a transfer of wealth. Unless you see the favor of God as the, as the Jews did from, from King Darius. Unless you see that favor, you will never be able to complete it. You might start it, but you will never complete it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I believe that as our church uh, prepares and how our church prepares now, you know, while we are still small, how we prepare ourselves now is going to determine who will serve faithfully and who will fall. You know, once the start, stuff starts to move and starts to get released onto this church, you know, people that aren't even prepared, they're going to experience it still. Because God, God doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, well, you weren't faithful. You weren't coming out the prayer movement. You miss out on this blessing. Now, when God blesses, man, I'm telling you, hallelujah, because of uh, some of the core leaders here at this church that have been standing in the gap and praying, interceding, serving faithfully at this church, because of those people, God's going to release it onto the whole church. Anyone who's part of this congregation at that hour, they're going to experience it. But how you prepare yourself now will determine whether you'll be faithful or whether you'll fall. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Isaiah 61, 6 says, you don't have to turn there. It says, you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And in their riches, you will boast. Hallelujah. It's a prophecy, brothers and sisters. Now, I want you to turn back. (coughs) Let's look at Haggai chapter 2. And I'm going to draw out. The main message for today. Look at verses 1 to 3. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittal, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Let's end there, right there. You see, when the foundations of Zerubbabel's temple was laid, the Bible tells us in Ezra chapter 3, verse 12, that the young Jews, they rejoiced greatly. But then the older exiles, they wept with a loud voice. Why? Well, this is because the older Jews had seen the magnificence, 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 the magnificence. The, the grandeur of Solomon's <laughs> temple. And so, when they saw this new temple being rebuilt, they were heartbroken. Because it wasn't nearly anything close to it. They just, they just didn't, they just didn't have the kind of wealth that Solomon was experiencing at that time. And on top of this, the situation was even more dismal. They didn't have their own land. They didn't have their own king. And this negative comparison was probably a contributing factor for their lack of resolve to finish the temple. See, after the foundation was laid and the opposition came, a lot of them were just like, you know what? What's the use? Man, this is nothing compared to what I saw before when I was young. And and, and this probably contributed to their lack of resolve. And by 520 B.C., after 16 years of inactivity, God asks in Haggai 2, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? That's the question we just read. Who among you saw this in its former glory? And then he asks, How do you see it now? How do you see it now? And then God proceeds to expose the attitudes of many of the older exiles which probably has spread to the younger optimistic Jews. And he exposes this attitude by asking the third question, is it as nothing in your eyes? Is it as nothing in your eyes? You know what? Everything, everyone at that time was thinking it. But Haggai actually speaks it. And the people thought that this new temple was inferior to the old. Yeah, it's like this. Let's say you're a star athlete. Uh, for the sake of illustration, let's just pick American football. Hallelujah. hallelujah. <coughs> you're a fast and strong, running back. Running back? <laughs> what a, hallelujah. Yo. Yo, praise the Lord. <laughs> running back, hallelujah. You love to play. And NFL teams are scouting you. But during an unfortunate game, Someone tackles you in a weird way. You fracture your ankle and you tear your ACL. If you don't know what that is, that means he just got messed up. You lose everything and you can't play football for two years. At the end of two years, you begin to practice again. But you notice that your speed and agility is not even at 50% of what it used to be. And then, to make it worse, the doctors tell you <coughs> that you'll never be anywhere close to your previous days. Your glory days of football are gone. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> how many of you would try to make a comeback still? It's not easy. You know, the how you, the Philadelphia Eagles, they just uh, drafted a, a running back in their second, second round. What's his name, Marcus? Uh, huh? LaShawn, come on, man. LaShawn Shady, boy. LaShawn from Pitt. Yeah, exactly. LaShawn McCoy. And his story was, man, he was a, he was one of the most sought after running backs when he played in high school. <clears throat> and then he got injured. And then he couldn't play for a whole year. And everybody withdrew their offers from him. Man, can you imagine how Shady felt? His nickname is Shady. (laughs) But you know what? This this guy, he had this amazing resolve to make a comeback. So he practiced, he practiced, he practiced hard, and he ended up playing for Pitt. And he played with such incredible, uh, like, just, you know, he just made such a recovery that the Philadelphia Eagles, they drafted him in the second round a few weeks ago. Now, Holly, we need we need a strong running back. So you know I'm I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, LeSean. But you know can you imagine what LeSean had to go through? Yeah, it was tough for him to make that comeback, especially when he feels like his glory days are already over. Or let's say you're a famous uh, you're a chef at a famous restaurant. Okay, a celebrity comes in, orders the most expensive item on the on the menu. You go in the back and you start preparing using the freshest ingredients, and you prepare the meal with great care. And then, while your dish is in the oven, you get an emergency phone call. And you, get, you talk on the phone too long, and you forget about the oven. You return back to the kitchen, and everything is burnt. Everything's burnt up. The waiter tells the celebrity of the, uh, about the situation, and the celebrity expresses his willingness to wait longer. So you get relieved and that you got a second chance. But unfortunately, when you open the fridge, all the freshest ingredients are gone. You just have to work with, like, stuff from last week. And you just got to work with what you have. Let me ask you a question. How many of you will be hung up on the dish that you lost? And not even want to make the, make that, take that second chance? <clears throat> well, just like this injured athlete, the Jews had no motivation to rebuild the temple. Because they had seen its glory days. Or just like the chef, they were hung up so much on what they had lost, they were not willing to commit themselves to finish this new project. Brothers and sisters, having pointed out the problem of this discouragement, this spirit of futility that the Jews were struggling with, in Haggai chapter 2, God offers them three words so they do not abandon the project again. They abandoned it you know, before, and God doesn't want them abandoned again. So he gives them three words to Haggai. The three words are God's word of encouragement, God's word of command, and God's word of promise. Now let me go over these real quick. Let's begin with God's word of encouragement. Look at verse 4 and 5. God says two things to encourage them. <laughs> he says, I am with you. And he says, my spirit remains in your midst. You know, sometimes the best encouragement that you can receive from someone is just to know that they are with you. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a hospital? Now, I've been in hospitals when I was younger. Have you ever been in a hospital? You know just how encouraging it is when just people come by to visit. Man, they don't even have to say anything smart. They just come by, you know, and, and just smile. And that is such an encouragement. <clears throat> and you know what? I think uh, this is why uh, God gives certain people manifestations. God gives uh, people these physical manifestations. And they're so precious for some people. Uh, <clears throat> and I believe God grants certain people manifestations, especially people who are young in their faith or who are struggling in their faith. God gives them these manifestations to encourage them. You see, when you start to shake... Or you start to, you know, get overwhelmed and you pray or whatever you, the manifestation you're experiencing. When you experience that, that's God's way of saying, I'm with you. My spirit remains with you. A mist among you. My spirit is with you. And it is God's very presence that encouraged the Jews to continue to do the work of God. And it is that same presence that we ought to seek after today. Because it will encourage us to walk through anything. The second thing is the God's word of command. If you look in these verses, God also says three words of command. He says, be strong. Be strong. Right? Second, he says, work. Get to work. And the third thing is, fear not. Fear not. Now, without doubt, many of the Jews, they were gripped with fear. Fear that God will never bless them again. Fear that, fear of opposition. Fear that if they started building the temple, they won't be able to finish it. They had all this fear. They were filled with fear. And brothers and sisters, when you are filled with fear, it's very difficult to act in faith. That's why the devil will always use the spirit of fear to stop you from making your next move of faith. And because the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. When something as paralyzing as fear gets a hold of you. What you need from God is a word of command. Do not fear. Be strong. Get to work. And sometimes you just need to get to work. That's how you get your mind off the fear. You just start doing what you need to do. And sometimes people, people they sit there and they're so gripped with fear... And God just says, Man, go go in the prayer class, start opening up my word, start just getting the work. Go minister to somebody else, and then you get will get ministered to yourself. What you need is sometimes just a word of command. You just need a kick in the butt. Is that why are you so scared? Be strong. Fear not. And this word of command, you see, it is <coughs> exactly what the people needed. You know, a thousand years before Zerubbabel. There was a guy named Joshua. And he was faced with a similar situation. The greatest greatest leader that ever lived had just died. And he had to fill his shoes. So talk about fighting fear. Frailty. I mean, uh, futility. Feeling like, what is the use of me even trying? Now think about that, man. I feel bad for, um, the guy who just took over, uh, Yoido Full Gospel Church. You know? There's Pastor Young Gi Cho, supposedly the pastor of the largest church in the world. And Pastor Young Gi Cho says, hey, hey, you look like you can do a good job. Here, here you go. Right, I'm, I'm, I'm entrusting it to you now. I'm, 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 I'm stepping down, I'm focused on some other stuff. You lead this church. Now can you imagine the fear? And the futility that that guy has to struggle with, he has to fill the shoes of Yonggi Cho. <laughs> or just think about, like, the greatest pastor you can think of in your country. And you having to step up and fill his shoes. That's what Joshua is faced with. And in that struggle, you know what God told Joshua? God said the same thing to him. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If you go on summer missions, we'll teach you that song. <laughs> it's good, it helps me memorize that verse. <clears throat> Hallelujah. Sometimes when you struggle with fear, God just gives you a command. Hallelujah! And it's exactly what you need to hear. To kick yourself out of it. The third thing God gives to the people is the word of promise. Look at verses 6 through 9. Verse 6. But thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while. I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. This is a promise. And I will shake all nations. So that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory. This is a promise. Says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. These are all promises, brothers and sisters. It's just so filled with promises. I'm not going to be able to touch upon all of them. So God gives them this word of promise. You see, for many of the exiles, all right, they were discouraged from rebuilding the temple. Because they felt that their best days were now history. They felt like all their best days were behind them. And see, when you start getting trapped into that kind of thinking, it paralyzes you from trying to do anything, from attempting to do anything. You know, some, some people, man, who are athletes in high school, you know, like Al Bundy, you know, <laughs> like from Maribel Children, it's an American TV show. Now, Al Bundy's still living in his glory days, which he believes they're all behind him. So what does he do? He just sells women's shoes. That's the, that's the purpose of his existence now. He's accepted it now. It's just to sell women's shoes because he believes his glory days of playing high school football are all behind him. And you know, when you get trapped in that kind of thinking, man, you don't want to try, you don't want to attempt anything in your life. And this is what people were struggling with. And so what God does is he gives a promise that deals directly with this futility spirit. And God says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. So God's saying, keep working to finish this temple because the glory of this temple will be far greater than Solomon's temple. When the people heard this, they must have thought, man, how can this be? This new building project, man, it's not even close. There's no way that this building will be more glorious than the one that the Babylonians destroyed. And the people, you know what? They were absolutely right. Materially, man, this new temple didn't come anything close to what Solomon had. But you see, they were wrong in They were thinking about the wrong kind of glory. You see, in the Bible, (laughs) the word glory can refer to material splendor, and it can also refer to the presence of God. The weighty, the kabod, the presence of God can be referred to just simply as glory. Hallelujah. And glory can also refer to material possessions, splendor. Now, the irony is, There's a guy named Herod the Great. Around the time Jesus was born, there's a guy named Herod the Great. And he tries to fulfill Haggai's prophecy himself by beginning a massive reconstruction of Zerubbabel's temple around 20 B.C. But you see, what happened was pagan temples of that time, they were getting massive. So Herod just felt like he needed to compete with that. And he wanted to fulfill Haggai's word using glory, that word glory, meaning material splendor. And thinking in that terms, he tried to, fulfill Haggai's word so what happened was the temple was mostly completed by what Jesus's time but the finishing touches weren't completed until 63 AD that was when everything was just finished and this this temple man it was it was it was crazy it was bigger than even Solomon's temple the scale of it was much bigger all right so I the great he did, he did an incredible thing here but seven years after 63 AD what happened the whole thing came coming down Whole thing got destroyed by the Romans. Jesus prophesied this destruction, saying that no stone will be left on another. You see, God, I believe God did that because <laughs> He wants to point to the real deal. He's talking about different kind of glory here in Haggai two nine. See, the glory that God talks about in Haggai two nine is not of just material splendor. Rather, the glory of this latter temple is referring to the glory, the kabod, the presence of God. Hallelujah. And this temple contained the presence of God like never before when Jesus stepped into this temple as a little child. This was fulfilled in Luke chapter 2. I'll read it real quick. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he will not die before he has seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. Remember, God said, in this place, I will give peace. And Simeon says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. And with those words, this word in Haggai 2,9, this promise was fulfilled because the temple contained you see, the Solomon's Temple contained all this silver and gold and rubies and diamonds and everything you can think of. But it never contained anything near as precious as the Son of God. And I believe <coughs> the Word of God is living and active. The deeper fulfillment of Haggai nine, I believe the deeper fulfillment of it has nothing to do with the physical temple. But let me explain In the Gospel of John, Jesus enters the temple courts and he starts to begin to overturn tables and driving out the money changers. You know? He goes crazy. He goes like, you know, and when the people demanded an explanation, Jesus answered them. He said this, he said something very interesting. He said, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. People are like, Man, you are crazy. Now we know you're crazy. First, you're turning over all these money changers and driving out people. What is wrong with you? Now we know you're crazy. You think you could tear down this temple and raise it in three days? And then they say, it took 46 years to build this temple. This is the Herod the Great's project. And you are going to raise it in three days? But the word of God says, but the temple that Jesus spoke of was his body. See, there's a a deeper fulfillment of Haggai 2.9. Ever wonder why we don't have temples anymore? Like, why don't we all, like, make a trip to Jerusalem and go and worship at the temple like like the Muslims do? You know, why why aren't we required to make these kind of pilgrimages to go worship God? Why don't we have temples anymore? We have church buildings, but we don't have these, like, elaborate temples. You know, there's no, like, section... Like, you know, the court of Gentiles and the Holy of Holies and the most holy place. We don't have all these sections. We just got this one room and we worship God here. Why don't we have temples anymore? It's because Jesus said, The hour is coming and has now come. John chapter 4. When we will neither worship on the mountain or in Jerusalem. But God's worshipers, true worshipers, must worship God in spirit and in truth. See, what Jesus is saying is, he's saying Haggai 2 9. He's pointing to Haggai 2 9. You see, we don't have temples anymore because the temple in the Old Testament was a shadow of Christ. It pointed to the true temple. And once the true temple came, the shadow was done away with. And I believe this is the reason why the temple in Jerusalem was completely demolished in 70 AD. And God has not allowed it to be rebuilt since. Temple has never been rebuilt. Because it's God's way of saying, you don't need a temple anymore. You have the true temple has come to you. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the true temple. The designs, the customs, the history of the temple, they all point to Jesus. The temple in Jerusalem was torn down in 586 B.C., and it took years for it to be raised up. But the true temple was torn down 2,000 years ago, and it only took days for it to be raised up. When the temple in Jerusalem was torn down, Jews were scattered all over the world. When the true temple was torn down, his disciples were also scattered. Since Jesus is the true temple, God no longer points people to Jerusalem to go and worship. He points people to his only son. He is the true temple. We no longer need to go into a temple and shed the blood of an animal to atone for our sins. Because the blood of the true temple, the blood of Christ has already been shed for you and me to be able to go into the presence of God now with a clear conscience, having been washed by his blood. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know God and experience his presence today, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to the temple. Just go to the true temple. Go to Jesus, the Son of God. You see, our God, (coughs) he is a God who loves to save the best for last. Amen? In In the Old Testament, God put his spirit on key people like David, like Moses. But at Pentecost in Acts 2, God fulfilled the word of the prophet Joel by pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And that word hasn't been fully completed yet. It's continuing to be fulfilled even to today as God continues to pour out his spirit on all flesh with greater and greater measure. Now, why, God, why did God do this? Why didn't God pour out his spirit in the beginning and maybe we'll be better off now? Why did God do that? <coughs> I'll tell you why. Because our God is a God who saves the best for last. Jesus said in John fourteen twelve, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these. Even greater things than these you shall do. What? You know, many of us think that Jesus and the apostles did the most amazing miracles, signs, and wonders that can ever be recorded. That's the way we think. Just like the Jews in Haggai. They think that they will never match the glory of Jesus' ministry. They don't even try. But Jesus gives us a promise here that completely opposes such thinking. He says, whoever even just believes in me, you will do the same things I've been doing. Open up blinded eyes, making the lame to walk, raising the dead. That's what Heidi Baker and Pastor Surprise and Noberto, they all experienced in Mozambique, raising the dead. That's what Andreas Bisoni was talking about in Argentinian revival. In Argentina, they're raising the dead. It's happening, brothers and sisters. It's happening because God spoke it. And when the question is, why, why did God do it this way? Because God, we serve a God who saves the best for last. You know, some conservative Christians they have old, old wineskin hearts, because uh, they don't have a revelation of our God being a God who saves the best for last. So they have this belief that the best was two thousand years ago. Come on, somebody! So conservative Christians believe the best was two thousand years ago. So everybody talks about the good old days of the, the Book of Acts, and they just try to pull the things that they feel like they can experience like the breaking of bread and the meeting of together and, and you know all that stuff, you know? But they, they, they like completely dismissed miracles. <coughs> so when Jesus pours out new wine on the earth today, a lot of these people with old wineskin hearts, they spit it out. When they taste the new wine, when they go to a revival service, they spit it out. Why? Because they think the old is better. That's why Jesus said, New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And praise the, praise the Lord, man. I'm pastoring a church of new wineskins. Amen? Yeah. Now, a lot of you were all backslidden just a few years ago, living pagan lives. And praise and glory to God, he has turned your lives around. Yeah. I was commenting <laughs> to Andreas how I work with such inexperienced young leaders because a lot of them have these late turnarounds. And the difficulty is, i gotta, I got to really be patient with them because they, they're learning a lot of things for the first time. But the wonderful part of it is, they have new wine skin hearts. Everything you tell them, there's a twinkle in their eye. <laughs> wow. Really? Uh, you can raise the dead. And they're like trying it the next week. <laughs> That's new wineskin hearts. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Our God is a God who saves the best for last. When Jesus was born, the population of the earth was a mere, mere 200 million. Smaller than the population of America right now. A thousand and eight hundred years later, the population on earth grew five times the amount to one billion. Only two hundred years later, the population has grown six times the amount to 6.6 billion. And you might be asking yourselves, why? Why is there such a crazy population boom now? Why? This incredible potential... For the greatest harvest in history. Why? Why? It's because our God is a God who saves the best for last. The glory of the latter temple will be greater. Technology. You know, they had crazy technology back then. But we got some crazy technology today. YouTube. Facebook. I mean, some of these technologies could be evil. Oh, yeah. You don't keep them under control. But we got some crazy technology. You look at the cars that are coming out. You ever you ever wonder? None, nowhere in history in the past have people been able to travel. Like like, like a few hundred years ago, we would never be, be able to get Andre Spisoni over for our in you know, the revival services. Like it would have taken him like two, three months. You know, he would have arrived with like malaria or something, like you know. <laughs> but today, man, we're just we're all over the world. It's crazy technology. Why? Why is God providing this technology now? Because He saves the best for last. And if you look at the first miracle Jesus performed, it gives you a clue about the last miracles God will perform. What was the first miracle Jesus performed? He turned water into wine. And then the the guests of the marriage banquet, they tasted the wine. They were like, what the? Why are you bringing the best wine now? Most people will serve the people the best wine first, and once they get a little tipsy, they bring out the bad wine. But you have saved the best for last. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus' first miracle gives you a clue of what he's going to do in these end times. Our God is a God Who saves the best for last. And what I am trying to preach to you today is. You are living in the last days. Where the glory of this generation. The glory of God manifested in this generation. Will be far greater than anything the Acts of the Apostles has recorded. Hallelujah. 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 And in a Christological way, if you look at Haggai chapter six, uh, chapter 2, verse 6 through 9 again, what it's doing is, it's also talking about the end times. You see, there was the Solomon's temple, and then there was Zerubbabel's temple. And although Zerubbabel's temple looked very humble, it looked very unimpressive, God was declaring, the glory of this temple will be greater. You see, and in a Christ... If you look at Christ, these things are pointing to Christ. You see, (coughs) the wonderful news is Christ's second coming, his second coming will be greater than his first. That's what God's saying. His second coming will be greater than the first. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So if you look at this passage, it says that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth and the land and everything. He's going to shake everything up. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews interprets that to mean the end days, the judgment seat of Christ. Talking about the end days, talking about the last eschatological, last end days. And so a lot of scholars say the first shaking was at Mount Sinai. And that shaking pointed to the first coming of Christ at the cross. But the second shaking, oh, will be a shaking that will shake all the nations. That second shaking that is prophesied here in chapter 2 is going to point to Christ's second coming. And that second coming of our Lord will be far greater than anything that our eyes have seen. When Jesus walked into Zerubbabel's temple, when he began to minister, when he turned over the money changers, people looked at him and was like, who are you? Who are you? We had great kings like David that ruled our kingdom. Who are you? And he was unimpressive. And nobody recognized who really he is. And in God's grace, he blesses those with faith to see who Christ really is. But let me assure you that when Christ returns at his second coming, every eye will see him on that day. Christian or not, every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. The glory of the latter will be greater than the first. Brothers and sisters, let me close with this. The temple is not just pointing to the true temple, but these things are also pointing to you. Because the Bible says that you are the temple of the living God because God's spirit indwells you. (coughs) And you might say, I'm not getting anywhere in my Christian life. I'm not growing. But God says, no. The glory of the latter will be greater than the first. You might not see it, but God's word says you are being transformed from glory to glory. Hallelujah. And where you feel like there is no, it's futile. And you're so discouraged in your Christian walk because you don't see the kinds of results that you want to see. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Don't look at yourself. Look to Christ. And keep walking. Take God's word of encouragement, His word of promise, His word of command, and keep on walking because God is transforming you into, from glory to glory. And hallelujah, collectively, We are going to welcome the magnificent glory of the King of Kings. Amen. Let's pray. (coughs) Let's just take this time. (coughs) I just want to take this time. I just want all of us just to lift up our voice. Our God is preparing this church for a mighty season. Our mighty glory, God has promised that He will fill this house with glory. He will fill your life with glory. He will fill this church with glory. He will fill this earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters over the sea. Hallelujah! And God wants us today to take faith, to have faith, to not to fear truly believe and work as if you really believe this. God, brother and sister, let me tell you right now, you either get with it or you're going to be left behind. And it is my heart as a pastor to see each and every one of you get with it, that you will share in the joy of the glory of our God being released onto all the earth. But for you to experience that, you got to focus not on futility, not on fear. you got to focus on his word. you got to focus on the true temple. And as you do that, God will fulfill his word in your life and on this earth. I'll give you an opportunity right now. Let's just lift up our voices and let us pray. Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done. In my life, in this church, and into the nations, God. Do it, Lord. May your glory, O oh God, rise upon us, Lord. May the glory that we experience five years from now be greater than the glory that we are experiencing now, Lord. May our transformation, oh God, Lord, be at a new and greater level of glory than where it is right now. Let us call out to the Lord. And let us ask God, Lord, do your will, Lord. Kingdom come, may your will be done. Hallelujah. Let's pray, brothers and sisters, Lord, we pray, O oh Father, God, Lord, that your church will rise up, Lord. That your glory will rise up, O oh God Lord, in your church, O oh God. There are greater things that are about to come with opposition, with challenges, with persecution, O oh God. but we are ready and willing to walk through it, O oh God. We are willing and willing, wanting, O oh God Lord, to look upon the true temple, to look upon Christ and to gaze upon His beauty, His majesty, his might. Upon his glory, Lord. Father God, Lord, you want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. Fill your house with glory, Lord. Fill your house with glory, Lord. Fill your house with glory, Lord. Fill your house house with glory, God. Oh. Ask God to release the silver and the gold. Ask God to release the silver and the gold. That you, in the wealth of nations, you will boast. And the work of God's kingdom will be completed. Come on, brothers and sisters. But we pray, oh Father, God, Lord, for a mighty transfer of wealth, oh Father. Pray, oh God, Lord, the silver and the gold belong to you. The cattle on a thousand hills, they all belong to you, oh God. And we believe, oh Father, Lord, that the wealth of nations, oh God, We will experience, enjoy, use, utilize for the glory of your name, oh God.